and welcome to the Real Issue Podcast. I'm your host, Rob Lundberg, and I'm the director of the Real Issue Apologetics Ministry, the Virginia Center for Public Christianity, as well as your host on the website, Rob Lundberg Apologetics. You are in 2020, and I want to wish you all a happy new year. Thank you for coming back, and uh, we're in a new month, a new year, a new decade. And we were evaluating uh, where we were, where we've been. I haven't put the uh, 2019 year in review on my blog yet. That's coming. Uh, I'm kind of sort of hashing things out a little bit. But what we're going to do today, over the last week or so, my family and I were uh, thinking about this movie that's out called The American Gospel and talks about the prosperity gospel and the new apostolic reformation that is going on and creeping into the churches. Of course, the word faith prosperity gospel has been around for quite some time. The new apostolic reformation has been morphing over the last few decades into what it is now, which is a big mess. And it's creeping into the churches and it's corrupting the music and it's really just doing a lot of damage. But what I want to do today is... I want to start out by addressing some of the things that are in the church. And, you know, you think, well, Rob, you know, why are you being critical of the church? Aren't, aren't these folks Christians? Well, yeah, most of them are. I can't be the judge of what, who is and who isn't a Christian in these movements. But at the same time, if you have a false gospel, chances are you have the wrong Jesus. And what I want to do is I want to address this from the perspective of the word faith theology this week. And this might be a longer show, I'm not for certain, depending on the amount of material and how fast I get through it. But if not, we'll get back to it uh, in another week or so. But nevertheless, many people today are being drawn into the prosperity gospel. And you know, when you think of prosperity gospel, you think of name it, claim it, Benny Hinn, Joel Olstein. you know, he's more of a law of attraction kind of guy, but he's very much prosperity gospel as well. Creflo Dollar, Joyce Meyer, who hasn't changed uh, one of her stripes. She's been kind of a chameleon trying to go step in and out. Paula White, who is one of the advisors for President Trump, you know, you've got all of these people that are jumping in and saying, well, you know, hey, you know, this must be something new in the church, you know, maybe this whole thing on faith is going to make me wealthy, healthy, and wise. Well, you know, if you really think about it, I wish I had uh, downloaded John Piper's assessment of it because there's a YouTube video out there. I, I won't have it this week, but. If I, if I mention it, I might even put it on the link on, on the summary for this so that you can listen to it and tell you what he thinks. He'll t- tell you how the cow eats the cabbage. I'll tell you right now. But the prosperity gospel is a plague in the church. And I wrote a blog posting with links this past week on this. And you can get it straight from the horse's mouth. I think I even linked John Piper's assessment of it there. You can go to Rob Lundberg Apologetics and look for the prosperity gospel, the uh, the plague of the prosperity gospel. 
So what I'm doing is I'm springboarding off of that. Uh, this is going to be additional material to what you're reading there, but some of it will be very, very familiar. Now, we know that like many cults that are out there, like the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses, they have a central figure and they have a central headquarters. But the word faith, prosperity, gospel uh, does not have something like that. There's no founding date on, on when it came about. We know it as a movement rather than an organized group. Again, there's no founder or no founding date as, as that. But, you know, if you think about the philosophical roots of the prosperity gospel, it really goes back into Gnosticism. The Gnosticism of E.W. Kenyon, who was perhaps the earliest modern exponent to blend the movement's Eastern mystical and New Age elements with, the Christian, with Christian teaching. Now, you know, there are official publications that are out there, um, but they're not of the organization. They're by the Word Faith teachers. You know, if you went and you uh, talked to somebody of the Word Faith movement, they'd ask you, uh, have you read the publication or have you read what Kenneth Copeland said in his Believer's Voice of Victory or the late Kenneth Hagin's Word of Faith magazine uh, that have been out there? Now, there are also scores of books and newsletters, pamphlets from various teachers uh, like uh, the late Hagin and Kenyon and Kenneth Copeland and Charles Capps and Freddie Casey Price as well as Joyce Meyer and, and, and all the others. Now, you're saying, Rob, you're naming names. Yes, I am. Uh, the Apostle Paul named names in, in his letters. He said, Alex, Alexander the coppersmith has done me wrong. May the Lord repay him on what he has done. And also, uh, Hymenaeus and Philetus have erred uh, in their view of the resurrection, I think he says in another letter, and he, you know, Paul names names, and 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 I think it's okay to names name names so long as you're not misrepresenting your material. And I'm not going to misrepresent anything, as I've shared with you in past shows. That the the more you know about a religion, is 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 good, but at the same time, uh, if you go and misrepre mis misrepresent with misrepresenting facts, chances are you have not understood it. Now. There is, like I said, no organizational structure to this. There's, they've no key headquarters or anything like that. Some folks credit Kenneth Hagen as a forerunner to the Word Faith movement, but he's been uh, also endeared by the late Paul Crouch and R. W. Schombach, as well as Kenneth Copeland. They've called him. And Kenneth Copeland refers to him even as Dad Hagen. So, you know, he seems to be the guru, I guess, if you will, of the prosperity gospel as far as getting this thing all launched and everything. Now, whenever you talk about word faith theology or you talk to somebody that's involved in word faith theology, there is this, there are terms that you might hear. Um, you know, just like if you go and you talk to somebody in the cults, you have to clarify your terms. And there's a lot of Christianese that's thrown out there within regards to, say, like the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses. And it's very much even more deceptive, I think, if you go and you get these two cults to define their terms. And then you go and you talk to somebody of the word faith camp, if you will. And it's going to sound biblical. 
it's going to sound contextual, but it's really not when you get beneath me, it sounds like Porky Pig here, uh, get beneath the veneer of, of the terminology. So like things like the God kind of faith or the force of faith or the anointing or the spirit man or the spiritual death of Christ or born again Jesus or authority believer. Wait a minute, Rob, you said born again Jesus. Yes, there are word faith teachers that believe that Jesus was born again. He's born again in hell. I'll get to that maybe a little bit later. I'm not going to get into the history of it, um, even though there are some uh, beginnings uh, in some of the mainline denominations like the Methodists, where uh, E.W. Kenyon got started. He became an ecumenical associating with Baptists, and some of his work had even resulted in the form, uh, from a few primitive Baptist churches, which are into foot Washington, uh, foot washing. And late in life, Kenyon moved into Pentecostalism. Most of your Pentecostals, uh, you got to be very, very careful when you talk to a Pentecostal and find out if they what they really believe about the prosperity gospel because it's leaked into charismatic sways. It's leaked into prosperity uh, Pentecostal sways. And the prosperity gospel is kind of like a, an amoeba. It just goes wherever it will. When you think about Kenneth Hagin, though, uh, Kenneth Hagin, uh, right around 1981, he wrote in his, um, it is he was referred to as the granddaddy of the faith teachers. That uh, is found in Charisma Magazine, October 1981, on page 24, an article by Sherry Andrews. In a survey of readers of Charisma, the major charismatic magazine concerning those ministers that influenced the most, Kenneth Hagin was third, ranked behind televangelist Pat Robertson, who has some uh, uh, prosperity gospel tendencies as well, and, and then also... Um, the other one was uh, Kenneth Copeland. So what is it, you know, what is it that they teach? Well, what I'll do is I'll get through the, the dogma of what they believe about their teachings, and then we'll come back after the break, and I'll give you some reasons why I believe that it is heretical and why I reject it. So first... What is their view of God? The view of God simply is that God operates by spiritual law and is obliged to obey the faith-filled commands and, and desires of believers. Now, that's not the God of the Bible. We'll talk more about that later. They also say that he not only reveals prosperity teaching supernaturally to the word faith teaches, but personally and verbally confirms their unique interpretations of Scripture. And that's from Kenneth Copeland in his Laws of Prosperity book, pages 60 to 62. They also say that the Abrahamic covenant is the basis for commanding God to do his part in the covenant. As Robert Tilton uh, has once said, we make our own promises to do our part, but we can tell God on authority of his word what we would like him to do. That's right. You can actually tell God what you would like his part in the covenant to be. And he, he said that in Miracle Plan, uh, God's Miracle Plan for Man on page 36. Copeland goes on even further to say that as a believer, you have a right to make commandments 
commands in the name of Jesus. Each time you stand on the word, you're commanding God to certain to a certain extent because it is his word that is found in our covenant with God, page 32. Now, Copeland also goes so far to say that God was lesser part, was the lesser part, and Abraham was the greater part in the Abrahamic covenant between them. And he says that in an audio tape entitled Legal and Vital Aspects of Redemption, 1985. The reference for the audio tape is uh, hash mark 01-0403. Now, with regards to God, faith teachers also make God into a big man. Now, Copeland also goes and says that God is as a as a being stands somewhere around six foot two and six foot three. This is not much different from Mormonism, because Mormonism believes in a man who was once a man who be elevated into godhood, and then Copeland goes on to say that he says that and that weighs somewhere in the neighborhood of a couple hundred pounds, little better, and a hand span of nine inches across. He says this in his tape. Spirit, Soul, and Body, 1985. And Morris Cirillo, who is one of these ones that is hanging around with the president as well, in an alleged out-of-body experience has described God suddenly in the front of this, this tremendous multitude of people, the glory of God appeared. The form that I saw was about the height of a man six foot tall, maybe taller, twice as broad as a human body, with no distinguishing features such as eyes, nose, or mouth. And that's in his book, the Miracle Book, pages 10 and 11. Now, when you talk about God, you are talking about a God that is finite, that is brought down. This is kind of a neo-theistic approach to bringing God and creating, make God in the man, image of man as far as how we would see him. You have to be very, very careful. Speaking of man, let's go there. The word faith teaches not only say that God is a big man, but also man is a little God. Now, Kenneth Hagin has asserted that man was created in terms of equality with God. He could stand in God's presence without any consciousness of inferiority. He made the same, made us the same class of being that he is himself. That's heresy. That is just false dogma. dogma. It is a lie from the pit of hell. I, I, I've got these quotes that, you know... Um, are just really unbiblical. <clears throat> For example, Copeland. Copeland also said, you don't have a God in you, you are one. That's in his Force of Love, 1987. Cirillo, again, uh, says that the whole purpose of God is, was to reproduce himself. You're not looking at more Cirillo. You're looking at God. You're looking at Jesus. Also, Creflo Dollar, I've got the link on my blog on the recent post that I did on the Plague of the Prosperity Gospel where he goes and he talks about this whole thing that God created us in his image and his likeness. He created them, male and female. Now, he goes and says that dogs beget dogs and God begot man, so man is a, follow the logic, faulty as it is, because God is an infinite being, a man is a finite being, so uh, you see that the problem with these word faith teachers is they elevate man up to God and bring God down to man so that man is infinite or tries to reach the infinite and God is brought down to finitude.
What do they believe about Jesus Christ? Well, according to the prosperity gospel teachers, the deity of Jesus Christ is actually compromised. Kenneth Copeland, in relating to what Jesus Christ supposedly told him, he said, don't be disturbed when people accuse you of thinking that you're God. The more you get to be like me, the more they are going to think that that way of you. They crucified me for claiming that I was God, but I didn't claim I was God. Really? In John chapter 8, verse 58, Jesus is involved in a conversation with Pharisees and his skeptics. The skeptics go and say that Abraham was our God and our Father. Jesus tells them, before Abraham was born, I am. They said, you're not even 40 years old, and you say that you've seen Abraham. And Jesus says, before Abraham was born, I am. The Apostle John says in John 1, uh, 1, it says, In the beginning is the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. Verse 14, it says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld Him in all His glory, the only one from the Father, full of grace and truth. And open up your Bible and read Colossians 1, 15, 16, you see that Jesus Christ was actually involved in the creation. If you go back to Genesis chapter 1, where it says, Let us make man. He wasn't talk God was not talking to the angels. He was talking to the Godhead, the Trinity, uh, the, you know, the fact that the Trinity existed well before in pre-incarnate form with Jesus. But, you know, I'm not preaching to Jesus only. I'm saying that your Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, but they have a faulty Christology. Um... Also, Copeland, um, no, Copeland, uh, Freddie Casey Price says that Jesus was the was on the earth, just a, a man, not the Son of God. Um, that is Mormon theology. That is Mormon theology. That that there is where uh, the the uh, um, Lorenzo Snow couplet of Mormonism it says before. Um, as man now is, God once was. As God now is, man may become. This is this is very much close to Mormon theology. Then the, you have the atonement, which is probably the biggest thing here with all of this. There's a whole bunch of other doctrines like positive confession, gospel of health, gospel of wealth. If you would like me to send a PDF of my notes for this, I'd be more than happy to send this to you. You can send an email to realissueapologetics at yahoo.com. But before we go to a break, let me talk to you about their view of the atonement. It says the very important doctrine of the atonement of Christ is distorted. Frequently, word faith teachers unduly overemphasize the spiritual death instead of the physical death. And physical death will not be, remove sins, Hagen has said. In other words, it took the spiritual death of Jesus to atone for sins. He goes on to say, or it goes, uh, the teachers go on to say that, do you think that the punishment for our sins, of our sins, was to die on the cross? If that was the case, the two thieves would have paid our price. Wait a minute. K.C. Price goes on further to say that the no, the punishment was to go into hell itself and to serve time in hell separated from God. And that's where Joyce Meyer comes in, and she talks about Jesus being a being a born again man in hell. He's the first born again man. That's heresy. That's heresy. Jesus did not need spiritual rebirth. Jesus did not to be uh, spiritually regenerated like you and I do because we're sinners. 
Jesus never sinned. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. We cannot pay for our sins. Jesus died on the cross to pay for our sins, shed his blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin, as it says in Hebrews. So what we have here is just total, total false teaching. According to Word Faith Teachers, when Adam rebelled or committed high treason, he not only betrayed God by turning over to Satan what God had given him, he also took the nature of Satan. So, to redeem mankind, creation of Satan's legal control, Jesus was the second Adam and had to die not only physically but spiritually. This may be acceptable among evangelicals, but where it is led teachers, word faith teachers, is not biblical. They say that Jesus not only bore our sins on Calvary, but he also took on the actual nature of Satan himself. Folks, again, that is heresy. Listen to Kenneth Copeland. Kenneth Copeland says the following, Just as Adam died spiritually, Jesus died spiritually. The spiritual death he suffered caused his physical body to die when he, Jesus accepted the sin nature of Satan he into his spirit. He cried, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's not why he did that. As he separated from God, he was ushered into the bowels of hell. That's Kenneth Copeland, page 13, in his book, Classic Redemption. Spiritual death means having Satan's nature, according to Kenneth Hagen. That is heresy. Just a man on earth and taking on the nature of Satan at the cross, Jesus becomes a sinner. No, he didn't. In the need of redemption. At the physical resurrection of Jesus, Jesus is a born-again man from the pit of hell. No, he didn't go there. Jesus was born again in the pit of hell. No, that's not true, according to Charles Caps. Caps believes that. And, of course, this is where he says the church started when Jesus was born again at the gates of hell. That is far from biblical truth. Again, we have other doctrines. We have the gospel of health and wealth. Uh, I, I can share all this with you. I'm just get, telling you about the plague of the prosperity gospel. And this is, as I've given you just with the facts of the view of God, the view of Jesus, and just the atonement, you can see and hear as you're listening to us on the Real Issue podcast. If you are a member of a Word Faith Church, thank you for tuning in. I hope you stay with us for the second part because I'm going to share with you why it's not biblical. We are going to go a long time in this, I think. So we're going to take a break right now. We'll be back in just a moment. Hello, this is Rob Lundberg from the Real Issue Apologetics Ministry. If someone were to ask you why Christianity was true or why you were a Christian without giving your testimony, would you be able to give an answer for the hope that is within you? At the Real Issue Apologetics Ministry, we train you to be able to give an articulate answer as to why Christianity is true through workshops, training seminars, and open forum question and answer sessions. If you would like more information about how we can help you, call us at 540-424-2305 or email us at realissueapologetics at yahoo.com. Let us go out and change this culture, giving them the gospel. But more if so, be able to give a reason for the hope that we have with gentleness and respect.
Welcome to the One Minute Apologist. Apologist. We interview the world's leading apologists to provide credible answers to curious questions. When it comes to salvation, Frank, is faith in Jesus enough? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it is. Yes, it is. It is. Because, of course, the scripture says in Romans chapter 10 that if you believe in your heart that Jesus has risen from the dead, you confess with your mouth that God has risen from the dead, you will be saved. And of course, Ephesians 2.8 says it's by grace you've been saved. It's not of works. But, of course, a saved person will do works out of gratitude for what God has done for us. Martin Luther put it this way. He said, the fruit comes from the tree. The tree does not come from the fruit. So we are saved by grace through faith, through our trust in Christ. I think trust is a better word. I think in the Greek it is trust rather than faith. In other words, you are trusting in what Christ has done for you. And you're doing that because God won't force you into heaven against your will. If you don't want him now, you're not going to want him in eternity. So that's where our free choice comes in. We trust in Christ. We want salvation, so he gives it to us. From that point on, everything else is what we call sanctification. We're justified by trust, trusting in Christ, but then we're sanctified, which is the process of becoming more like Christ over a long period. At least that's the intention. Yeah, Augustine once said, we're not saved by faith plus works, but by faith that works. Exactly. Hello, this is Rob Lundberg from The Real Issue Podcast. Thank you for tuning in to the show this week. We'd like to ask you to do us a favor and go to Apple Podcasts or iTunes, whatever platform you're listening to, and give a review. Give us five stars and help us move up the review scale so people will get more exposure to The Real Issue Podcast and The Real Issue Apologetics Ministry. We'll be more than happy to share with you more about what the show is all about and what our ministry is all about. Also, be sure to subscribe to The Real Issue Podcast so you'll be able to listen to more shows and get more equipped as we go out to give our world heaven. Thank you for tuning in and enjoy the show. And we're back. Uh, Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for listening. I'll tell you, uh, what a bang up. Uh, start for 2020 with the Real Issue podcast. We started talking about the prosperity gospel, and you know when I was upstate New York, we ran into a lot of it, and we have a lot of it here in Virginia. In fact, it's all over the world. And of course, again, I, I refer back to Dr. John Piper's assessment of it, and it's not very kind. <laughs> I, I, I wish I had that link, but I don't have it right now. And if you go to my blog, if you go to the uh, roblundbergapologetics.com, look for the look for the uh, entry or look for the post, the plague of the prosperity gospel, and click on one of the first links that you see. You'll get what Dr. Piper says about the prosperity gospel, folks. The prosperity gospel leaves a lot of damage. A lot of damage. You know, when you talk about the positive confession, the spoken word, and all this other stuff, name it, claim it. The promise, the false promise of health, where if you have enough faith, then you're going to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. Folks, that is not reality, and that is not true. It is far from the truth. So, 
this part of our show right now, we're going to deal with what the Bible really has to say about all this. Because, you know, if you stray away from the Word of God, and if you add into the Word of God, there's problems. If you stay with the Word of God, you're going to have... Where it says in Psalm 1, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, or stands in the way of sinners, or sits in the seat of the ungodly, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in this law, he meditates day and night. That's not emptying your head. That's filling your mind with the Word of God. And what we're going to do in this part of the show is I've gone and given you some bad juju. I've gone and given you some bad quotes. I mean, the quotes are accurate. The quotes are, are sourced. But if you're mad about maybe some loved ones being involved in the prosperity gospel, um, this show, I want you to give them this link. I want you to give them this link to the podcast because they're going to get the biblical truth here. We're going to give you biblical truth. We're going to give you the facts. We're going to give you why we call it the real issue. We're going to give you the real issue as far as what's going on. And our first show of 2020, it's just one that the Lord just laid on my heart to share with you. Notice that I said, did not, notice that I did not say the Lord spoke to me. The Lord laid this on my heart after going and watching Costi Hinn's testimony on YouTube. In fact, that I would recommend that you do that because he came out, he was the nephew of Benny Hinn, who is a word faith, word faith healer. He has a healing ministry. Now, you should probably think, well, Rob, you know, I like Benny. I like Joyce Meyer. I like Kenneth Copeland. Um, you're getting snake oil. You're getting snake oil. And what I want to do in this part of our show today is to deal with what the scripture has to say. What does the Bible have to say? You know, you can talk about the positive confession. You can talk about gospel of health, the gospel of wealth, and misplaced or displaced use of authority. You know, the authority lays at the feet of the prosperity teacher and anybody outside of being a prosperity gospel teacher, they have no authority. It's a cultic mentality, and you'll hear that in Costi Hen's testimony. So what does the Bible have to say? Let's stop rambling and let's just get to the Word of God. First off, number one, God is unique and sovereign. In First Timothy chapter six and verse fifteen we see that God is pure spirit in John chapter 4.24. There is no biblical basis for the teaching that God has his own body as an essential part of his nature or being. This would be more in line, and you heard me mention this earlier, it's more in line with uh, Mormonism than it does Orthodox historical Christianity. Number two, man is, a un is unique from the rest of creation. He is not divine. He has created the image and likeness of God. We read that in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, and also chapter 9 and verse 6, but bearing God's image that does not make him a little God. By definition, God is an uncreated and self-existent necessary being. Obviously, humans are created. We were created. We are created, and therefore, we are not self-existent self like God is. God is the only one with a divine nature, according to Galatians 4, 8, Isaiah 1, 6 through 11, Isaiah 43, 10, 44, 6, 45, 22, Ezekiel 28, 2, and Psalm 8, verses 6 through 8. 
Christ is eternal, the only begotten Son of God, the only incarnation of God, according to John 1, 1, 1, 2, 1, 15, 1, 14, John uh, 1, 18, John 3, 16, 1 John 4, 1, in him dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and we read that in Colossians chapter 2, verse 9. By receiving the limitations of humanity, as we read in Philippians 2, 7, uh, 2, chapters, uh, 2 verses 6 and 7, Jesus forewent the exercise of some of his prerogatives as God, but he did not cease to be God. It is also impossible for the natures of God or man, both uh, Christ was both God and man while on earth, and uh, did not cease to be God, did not cease being God. Uh, number four, the nature of the atonement had to, not, had to do with Jesus' physical death on the cross being the payment for sins. Now, you heard something earlier that the deed was handed over to Satan. That's not biblical. Uh, that's part of what is known in theological circles as the ransom theory. The question is who the ransom was paid to at the cross. Jesus paid the ransom for our sins. It was paid to God. It wasn't paid to Satan. Plain and simple. Now, the nature of the atonement had to do with Jesus' physical death on the cross, not um, anything to do with us uh, making a payment. Jesus made the payment for our sins. Hebrews 9.22, Christ said to Telestai, which means it stands finished, uh, that is in John 19, verse 30, which translates uh, paid in full. Also, payment for our sins also took place on the cross in Matthew 26, 28, 1 Peter 2, 24, Colossians 1, 2, verse uh, 1, Colossians 1, verses 20 to 22, and Hebrews 10, 10, 10, 12, 10, 14, and 10, 19, and 10, 20. There was nothing more to pay beyond the cross plain and simple. And that's found in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 18. Number five, the uh, only one who is, has who ever created reality by the power of his word is God and God alone. Man cannot manipulate reality with his words. Uh, we can go and take the old adage, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That is true, but sometimes we let words shape our reality by something that somebody says, but we cannot manipulate reality ourselves. Uh, that's that's God, and he does not have to, does not need uh, or have faith. God does not have faith. Faith is depending on something outside of ourselves. It is a trust. If God depends on something outside of himself, he is not supreme, and therefore he would not be God. Man is, is, is not God, and uh, man is the only one, not God, is in need of faith. The, the faith re referenced in Mark chapter 11, verse 22, and Hebrews 11:3 is clearly the faith which, which has God as its object, not the kind of faith that God has. Number six, when we talk about the uses of words of positive confession, let us not forget that James has what James has to say about the power of the tongue in James chapter 3, verse 5 and following. He, he says, So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts great things. Bold, behold, 
Um, how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire, and the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity, the tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life, and it is set on fire by hell. Verse 7, for, they, for every species of beasts and birds of rep, and reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race, but no one can tame the tongue. Verse 8, it is a restless evil and, a, and, fully, and full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse man who have been made in the image and likeness of God. From the t same mouth comes both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not be in this way. One may help or hurt with their tongues, uh, with their words of encouragement or condemnation by telling the truth or misleading, but to treat words as if they were some kind of Star Wars type weapon by which reality is manipulated or altered is not biblical. In fact, folks, it is demonic and occultic. It is not biblical. Now, let me give you some reasons why we reject it. How are we doing on time? We're doing great. Let me give you some reasons why we reject the word faith heretical teachings. First off, um, when it pounced on this country, it transformed some dead churches and struggling churches into newly resuscitated organisms and individuals. However, it, it, with it brought heresy. Um, thinking on the very fact that there is a lot of occultic and New Age tendencies in the ideology of this new Gnosticism known as the word faith theology, um, it is not a triumphalism. It is heresy, it is occultic, and it is a satanic trap of the New Age because um, it leads people unthinkingly um, into a worldwide kingdom for the Antichrist, or for an Antichrist. Thinking on, those, on that thought, um, number one, the reason why it should be rejected is because it re requires special or revelation knowledge. Like the Gnostic heresies throughout the ages, word faith needs special knowledge in order to be effective. And the leaders see themselves as having a commission to bring new spiritual revelation to the body, and they condemn sense-knowledging as inadequate. In this scheme, it is not sin and obedience that causes us to fail, but ignorance of the word. Moreover, this revelation knowledge is limited to the few who can receive it. That's namely the word faith teachers, and that's, that is elitism. And um, those of us who are not in leadership are considered less intelligent and at a disadvantage. Number two, it makes Almighty God and Creator a weak faith being who is at the mercy of of his own universal laws. Now, that's, a, that's an interesting admonition here. Although word faith ministers speak of God in a personal way, they treat him like a personal, uh, like an impersonal energy source with forces that can be operated by use of laws, laws which even God has to obey in order to create and run the universe. They say God has left the control of the planet's uh, in man's hands and is powerless to intervene without a covenant partner. 
God's omnipotence and sovereignty is damaged by these teachings, in fact. You know, God is not in total control. You know, we're, we're, we're sharing this podcast, and we know it's God's will that I'm sharing what I'm sharing. I, I'm not claiming any elitism or anything like that. All I'm doing is getting the information out to you and let you take it and run with it and whatever you want to do with it, and hopefully you send it to some others that they might be able to hear the Real Issue podcast. But, you know, it, it's, that's a problem. That is a huge problem. Number three, let's move on. It makes the divine Son of God, Jesus Christ, into a born-again man who had to die in hell to pay the price for our, tre for our treason. Well, it is a fact that you and I have committed treason. We have committed spiritual anarchy by being born sinful in a sinful nature. We need a Savior. Jesus, according to the word faith doctrine, though, discarded his divine powers and walked earth as a mere man filled with the Spirit. He had to use the word. In other words, he was obliged and required to use the word and the laws of faith to do miracles. Well, that's why you have ministries like Benny Hinn and Catherine Kuhlman back in the 60s. You know, that, that's a problem. They go on to say that when he, when he died, his blood did, uh, did not atone. That's classic rejection. That's heresy. Um, but he had to take upon himself the very sin nature of the devil, causing his spirit to die and suffer three days, nights, and a hellish torment as a man before God the Father gave the command for him to be recreated and a reborn man. Thus they say Jesus was the first of many sons in the pattern uh, for us all to follow. That is heresy. Um, Jesus's substitutionary atonement is a classic doctrine of the historical church. And it is very, very problematic when you, when you think of it this way. Um, you think of this nonsense that they have here. It elevates man to equality with Jesus. Um, We've talked a little bit about that. It makes man, number five, a, a god. To understand the position of the word faith he gives to man, we need to know their interpretation of creation. And in their teaching, man has no nature of his own, but takes on the nature of his Lord. When his Lord uh, had a divine nature, he created as God. He was created as God of the earth. They say that after man's fall, he took the nature, sin nature of the devil to become like Satan. All of this, of course, is contrary to Scripture. So the word faith believers would reason that a born-again man has regained his divine nature. Thus, he is entitled to use the attributes of his divinity, such as created powers and domination in the environment. Number six, it makes the redemption into, the, into a restoration of dominion for mankind. This is dominion theology. This is dominion theology, much like the new apostolic reformation that we're seeing. Many of the word faith, many of the new apostolic reformation leaders are actually embracers of word faith theology. Word faith teachers stress the loss of dominion over the earth, not sin, as the root of the problem. So salvation becomes a matter of rediscovering one's place of godhood and learning 
uh, to rule as kings on earth. The role Jesus had to play in redemption was the substitute Adam coming to earth to fulfill all that Adam had failed to do, demonstrating the possibilities of dominion and taking Adam's place in hell to let mankind off the hook. That is heresy. The worship given to Jesus by word faith believers is more than a sense of gratitude than recognition of his divinity. So the question is, why do you go to church? Do you go to church to um, um, recognize his divinity? Or do you go to church and worship because if it's a matter of gratitude of what he accomplished at Calvary's cross. In the word faith theology, there is no, none of this. It's, it's a matter of divinity because they believe that they can attain this divinity as well. Number seven, the goal of the word faith theology is the transformation of the earth by spiritual dominion. They see themselves as having returned to their godlike dominion of the earth, they foresee the time coming when the sheer force of numbers, probably all of mankind, has to bow the knee to God. They teach that all the wealth of the world will flow to the church and that the laws, government, entire social structure in the world system will have to change. Despite scriptural warnings of apostasy and increasing wickedness in the end times, they foresee a great victory for the church in the future as the Spirit sweeps millions into the kingdom on, on earth. Whether or not they claim to believe in the end times plan of revelation, the rapture, the millennium, and any of these things, they still seem to be able to fit a scheme of global church unity and triumph into the plan of the ages. This is tied in part and parcel to the seven mountain mandate of the new apostolic reformation. This is heresy. This is not biblical. This is far from um, anything what the Bible teaches. Number eight, it replaces prayer with confession and God's will with manipulation of forces. Well, of course, if you name it and claim it, blab it, grab it, if you don't get what you want, then you didn't have faith. That's, that's a problem. Number nine, it denies the reality of sin and sickness. And I can't tell you how many tragedies have happened as a result of these charlatans going and telling people, you just have faith and your loved one will be healed. That is heresy. That is sheer heresy. Word faith ministers teach that the only one true reality is spiritual. And the earthly senses are deceptive. Thus, believers are led to deny that they are ill, poor, or any way below par. They are taught to overcome adversity by confessing a suitable, positive scripture instead of seeking God's guidance. Also, the reality of sin and the need for forgiveness is glossed over by teaching that a simple confession of the Lordship of Jesus Christ will affect the change of lifestyle. Well, you know... When you take away Christ and make it all man, dangerous consequences and dangerous results happen. Number 10, it focuses on self and the world instead of God and heaven. I don't think I need to go further in any more of that other than the fact that the word faith doctrine is all on success. It's on prosperity, advancement, gain, health, strength, and there is little compassion for those who fail to come up with these exacting standards. Any adversity is said to be a lack of faith to confess the appropriate word. 
This is a great misunderstanding of the wisdom of God and his plan to bring his children to glory. And if we refuse to share in the trials and setbacks and persecutions of Jesus, we are not ready to share in his glorification. Just read Romans chapter 8 and focus and zero in on verse 17. You know, some of the word faith teachers and ministries have been the worst offenders in bringing the name of, and cause of Jesus to disrepute. Ministries that emphasize prosperity have ended up in greed-manipulating believers into giving money that they can little afford. Overemphasized teachings about God's healing has led to extravagant claims for miracles that have been exposed as hyperbole and a sham. Doctrines about man's godhood and superhuman abilities have led to arrogance, self-will, and use of psychic power to perform miracles instead of simple dependency on the Holy Spirit. Also, teachings about faith have become rituals and formulas to produce instant results, and many who could not or would not go down this road are derided and rejected as having no faith. Legions of hurt people have testified to their bad experiences, both personally, economically, and corporately, with the word faith extremes and excesses. Indeed, the very root of this teaching is horrible, coming as it does from Christian science and metaphysical schools of thought. Let me wrap this up and just say this. What we can learn from word faith doctrines is really no more than straightforward Biblical, it's, it's, what we can learn from the word faith doctrines is really no more than straightforward biblical teaching, is not biblical teaching. Faith in God and faith in the word, his word, belief in, in divine intervention in our affairs, a positive outlook based on the promises of God, and a knowledge of the defeat of satanic powers in Jesus, in Jesus, all of this and more is good and sound. Their intentions are good. But the word faith movement today has gone far beyond these boundaries and created a monster that is devouring both its leaders and its followers alike. It is not necessary to buy into a word faith system in order to benefit from the plain, plain teachings of Scripture. Any who are followers of word faith ministry should rethink very carefully about their positions as followers of men and a dubious men-inspired system of formulas also should be wary of the manipulation to give gifts and tithes to these ministries. It would be better to support your own church or a more humbly doctrinally sound Christian work and to seek for scriptural inspiration from the Holy Spirit who is our only guide and teacher because and the reason why he's our only guide and teacher is because he is part of the Godhead. Thank you for listening to the Real Issue Podcast. We have gone a little bit longer today, but this is important stuff. Uh, my wife and I, before we went to studio this morning, um, we were talking about her being on next week. We're hoping that happens. But we'll uh, that'll be a surprise for you as well as uh, for, for us as well when we can go and uh, have her on. We're going to be talking about uh, a lot of things, a lot of concerns as parents that we're seeing. Uh, we, we, we are endorsers of Summit Ministries, 
and we're seeing some things where kids are coming home from two weeks of summit where my daughter Christine is actually doing some ministry on Facebook instant message we're going to talk about that a little bit when we have her on so as you go out this week as we celebrate the year 2020 let it be a year that produces spiritual fruit for you and for our ministry. And if you would like to make a donation to our ministry, you can go to roblundbergapologetics.com, go to the donate link, and you can uh, share whatever God leads on your heart. I'm not asking you to give a seed faith offering. <laughs> We're not doing that. That's word faith theology. Whenever you hear that, by the way, you know, give a seed offering. That's not biblical. So, um, if whatever the Lord leads, uh, how you want to join our team and be, be a part of uh, extending the message of the gospel to the happy pagan as well as to those in the church who need to hear the, the true gospel. We are talking about the gospel as being that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and he rose on the third day according to the scriptures. That is the gospel. That is the goal of apologetics. So as you go out this week, as you go out and share, be his ambassador, be loving, gentle, and respectful to somebody who does not agree with what you believe, but give an articulate, uh, give an articulate answer as you go out this week. And as you go, be his ambassador with the goal of going out and giving them heaven. We'll be back with you next week. Lord bless. <laughs>